Warning, we're not medical professionals. We're just two gross weirdos fascinated by bodily functions who read too much WebMD. This podcast will contain some pretty gross content, so listen at your own risk. Gross Podcast. Welcome to Gross Podcast, the podcast where we talk about gross bodily functions and phenomena. I'm Katie. <laughs> I'm Jessica. And we're here with our friend Liam today to talk about the use of animals in medical research. Uh, Jessica, how's your body? Um, It is fine. I just started my period today. I'm using Thinks for the first time. Ooh. Yay. And this funny thing happens with my cycle where I've noticed that like... I had a therapist say it was, like, level of testosterone rising before your period, but I, like, the day before my period starts, I get, like, really productive, and I, like, have this, like, shoot of energy, and, mm-hmm. like, I also have these, like, weird epiphanies sometimes. It's, like, a really weird, like, emotional thing that happens with my cycle, but it was really nice because yesterday I, like, had all this energy to get all this stuff done around the house, and then I just also was, like... I know that this is just because I'm getting my period tomorrow, and it's kind of nice, and I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah. That's where I'm at. That sounds really nice. I don't think that happens before my period. I think I just get tired and my boobs get itchy. Yeah, it's like... It's less fun. If you have, like, really bad premenstrual syndrome or whatever, where you have, like, bad emotional fluctuations, mm-hmm. um, that tends to be something that can happen, supposedly. That's what I've been told by doctors and stuff. But since... My mood is stabilized by chemicals. Um, I get less of the downside of that. Ah. So I kind of just get to take advantage of the, like, nice side of, like, more energy from, like, hormonal fluctuations. And I don't have as much of the, like, down spiral. I want to die in the world's falling apart feelings of getting a period. That sounds really nice. Yeah. But it used to be, like, more of an e- extreme, almost, like, bipolar or manic depression kind of thing. Yeah. But now it's much better. That's all. Go oh, ahead. also I went to a thrift store today, and I've been feeling that, like, thrift store itchy feeling. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, I just, everything itches because it just, I touched one thing that was slimy. Ew. It what was a candle. You... Why was it slimy? Who knows? anyway how's your body katie um it's okay i feel like there has been kind of some stressful stuff happening lately at work and and other places and i feel like i'm starting to carry some of that like in my neck and stuff um and trying to figure out like how to relax that the right way but i don't know and my acne is like kind of extra bad in some places right now and that just it just it hurts i just have like little spots all over that hurt right now (laughs) that sucks yeah feel bad for me (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know but that's that's pretty much it i could be eating healthier i'm trying to to get some more greens in because i feel like i'm missing that i feel like i'm eating junk food out of retaliation from that grocery tax conversation we had oh yeah where i just want to eat like crappy food because all of the liberals in whatcom county are being classist actually i looked more into the soda tax initiative and the we were having a conversation about it before but i think that we were or like i at least was operating under the assumption that it what the initiative was um, for the purpose of taxing soda, but what the actual initiative on the ballot is, is it's an initiative that would make taxing soda and junk food illegal. What? Yeah. And the initiative was 
crafted and put forth by like soda companies, basically. Huh. So that's not at all how it's been advertised. I know. So interesting. More complex. So I don't know. I feel like that like there might be even though the idea of like taxing soda might be uh, in general perceived as classist. I think that there could be like there could be ways to tax soda or certain types of junk food in certain scenarios or places. And then if that money was used to actually benefit um, communities that could like use healthier options the most, like there, I feel like there are good ways to do it. And I don't like the idea of, of outlawing it completely. Oh yeah. I get that. I think that what I don't like is the idea of making like soda and junk food into a sin tax and having yeah. that be like the marketing technique to me, that's really crappy. Yeah. But I mean, we could probably talk about that yeah. for like a whole, a whole, a whole episode. episode. <laughs> um, Liam, how's it going? Good. How are you too? I'm good. How's, how's your body? My body, my body's good for the most part. I've had some some digestive issues this week, specifically because uh, been under a little bit of stress, and I've been eating a little bit less healthy. And since I've been in the Bellingham area, I feel like I've been taking much better care of myself and nice. eating things like more complex sugars and a lot more fiber and uh, a lot less sugar and just and also a lot less caffeine. So I feel like there's a lot of homeostatic baselines that are a little bit out of alignment. But other than that, I think I'm think I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. We are using uh, an extra layer of anonymity in this episode, <laughs> but our guest Liam works in a medical research facility, and um, we wanted to talk today about the use of animals um, kind of in general in medical research and um, specifically your stories with it. Do you have anything else you want to say to introduce yourself or the work that you do? Um, the work that I do. So I, I can speak on things that... So I don't work directly with animals, but I have quite a few colleagues that, that do. And I, I see things and I, I I know kind of kind of the escalation, like how research kind of progresses and it, as far as getting drugs or pharmaceuticals into the human body. Um, there's a lot of work behind the scenes that involve animals, as these two have discussed, and um, I think it's a, a great topic to explore. There's ob obviously a lot of ethical questions and sides to this argument, but um, I'm going to try to be as uh, apolitical and as objective as I possibly can and uh, kind of see the big picture about how we're trying to not just improve you know, the lives of animals, but also the lives of our own species. So with that in mind, I think it's a great topic to kind of dive into. Yeah. Yeah. I had a really crappy psych professor who would go off on rants about like, you know, how everything needed to be tested on animals. And I feel like for a long time, just because that professor was such a jerk that I was like, I'm so anti-animal testing. Um, because especially it being like in psychological fields where maybe like you're doing weird behavioral studies on chimps or something. And I was like, is that necessary? But, um, I feel like the more that we've talked about it, like leading up to this episode, I think it's given a, me a more nuanced perspective than, <laughs> than maybe I had before. But do you want to kind of explain maybe what like the general process is of like how animals fit into like your average sort of like maybe medication study or something? Sure. Um, so generally, so my background is, is chemistry related. Um, I've always since I was in, in high school, I've always been interested in the way drugs affect the body, not necessarily going the illicit route, but just more of the therapeutic route. Mm -hmm. um, but at least from the, the research world and the development world, um, animals are crucial. Uh, the FDA will not let you do a human study without previous animal knowledge or mm -hmm. previous animal data. Um, animals are also great because uh, there's things like generation times and life cycles and everything that are much shorter than humans. So you can see long-term effects and you can obtain a lot more data in a shorter amount of time. Um, most of the projects I work on are multi-year um, and we're able to do multiple animal studies if we use rodents or smaller models, um, specifically because uh, just the, the, the studies and the models that we use them for is just so much shorter. I mean, we have things that are uh, anywhere from two weeks to one month, whereas a clinical trial, a phase one clinical trial in a human 
population can take upwards of, you know, 400 days, at Mm -hmm. least one year. Um, so with that in mind, you can get a lot more data in a short amount of time. Um, it's also, and I hate to say it this way because, you know, we are a capitalistic society. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah. It's a lot cheaper to, to, to do the, the organization and everything for working with mice. Mm-hmm. Things can be a lot less pure. They don't have to, the quality control can be a lot less, um, granted, you know, you, you want to be as, as controlled as you can. And there's certain regulations and I am not the person to speak to this because this is not the field that I work directly in. This is a field I see regularly, but there's certain um, international committees and, and methods and protocols of approving just the way you do an animal study. Mm-hmm. Um, the joke that I've always heard when I was in school was that the animals in this country get better health care than, you know, the human <laughs> beings, specifically yeah. because of how rigorous and how regulated this field is. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're not torturing an animal unnecessarily you i mean you would even to the point if you see um you know unnecessary suffering it's it's protocol to just sacrifice the animal to end that suffering Mm -hmm. um so this is a very obviously i guess at a heated topic but it's it's done with the most care and most um just uh, i'm lacking on the correct words Mm -hmm. to use right now but it's like discretion yes yeah it's not meant to just just unnecessarily cause harm. Mm-hmm. It is meant for the betterment of our species and the animal species as a whole. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, you know, there's numerous countries that have monuments to animals that are used in research specifically because it's it's a very respected thing to do. I want to, like, go see a monument like that. I feel like that's, yeah. like, really beautiful. <laughs> there's, there's actually one local. It's not, really? yeah, it's, um, it's on uh, one of the San Juan Islands, and it's a... A uh, monument to what's called the green fluorescent protein. It's a uh, mm. for those of you who don't know too much about proteins. Um, so in our cells, we have DNA. There's three major molecules that um, people in the research field kind of work with. There's DNA, there's RNA, and there's proteins. Um, and proteins can do all sorts of things. I'm not going to dive into this, but there's one that happens if you hit it with a certain wavelength of light, it actually fluoresces. Mm. So there's a scientist at UW. Um, I don't. The name is escaping me right now, but. Um, he was fishing out of the, I think it was Friday Harbor and the, at night and they found jellyfish that glowed in the dark yeah. and they were able mm-hmm. to find out what protein, uh, caused that to happen. And they found out it was small enough. They could actually synthetically link that to other cool. molecules in the cell and, and see where things go and see how things associate. So there's a monument on one of the San Juan Islands to that Aww. protein specifically. Oh, are there animals that people don't typically think of as like being tested on but there's kind of an order of progression um in that you so generally you want to start with so one it starts it depends on what you want to work with um if you're working with something like um ebola it's going to be very different than like something that's not airborne you Mm -hmm. know um or like uh if you're working with something for like a specific type of like pain management um there's different ways you progress through that too Mm -hmm. so um generally what you want to start with is i hate to say the cheapest but you want to start with the shortest um or the the narrowest generation time so you would usually start with rodents yeah um and then you would kind of progress up the up the chain and go through like guinea pigs if there's a model for that and then you would go to like dogs and then you would go to some type of non-human primate mm-hmm. um there's other depending on the disease of course or, or target um like sheep is another one um uh, i think horses are used sometimes not very mm-hmm. commonly but but you know depending on what you're working with if it's a veterinary vaccine you might progress to horses mm-hmm. and then finally once you go through the rigor of, of manufacturing and quality assurance and quality control you can progress to a human crazy there are some limitations (laughs) depending on what animal you do work with um so there's some there's some things like i know and i like i said i'm not as familiar because this is not my field just a field i see but like some animals can't vomit so you Mm. know that if you're administering an oral drug it's going to 100 percent is going to be in the body yeah um there's some things you have to consider like the weight of the animal yeah um the weight loss of the animal um Mm. just things like that the vomiting one is definitely not cats. Yeah. No. <laughs> or dogs, I think. Yeah. yeah. What breed of dogs? I think it depends on the study. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm less familiar with this. Yeah. Um, I but, have all these questions. <laughs> but the dogs yeah. are a nor- normal route yeah. for oral uh, dosing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Huh. And there's also different types of dosing, you know, yeah. too, depending on what you're working with. Um, what kind of animals are used for research in the facility that you work in? So we specifically are a small animal, small model animal facility. Um, this generally is limited to mice and, uh, 
animals that are very similar similar to mice like rats and guinea pigs mm-hmm. um from what i can say uh i would say at least 90 percent is just mice and those are commercially available um it's kind of the standard early um animal model you would use in drug development uh they're pretty uh versatile because you can do multiple things from uh injections to um oral dosing to uh depending on your therapeutic um there's probably a model for that um kind of avenue you want to progress so i have a question when you say these mice are commercially available yes that does that that means that you order mice like from, from a, a facility from like a scientific supplier yeah are, are they like like standardized like sort of um condition insured yep wow so so the, in the last <laughs> you know 30 years alone um you know since we kind of discovered how dna works and yeah. how it's the just the the building block for um uh, really life mm-hmm. um we have our tools for manipulating DNA have gotten so extensive in that you can actually commercially order. I mean, go on the internet and type in, I want this breed of mice. If you read a scientific paper, there are certain kind of standardized mice strains where they have just, they know the complete genome or all mm-hmm. the DNA and all the genes uh, in that animal, and they can commercially breed them to be deficit in certain genes. Uh, if you want a mouse with a weakened immune system, you can buy that. If you want a mouse to be a certain type of, like a certain color, certain type of fur, to be hairless, to um, be of a certain size. uh, And granted, like I said, I'm not familiar enough with this because it's not the field that I'm specifically in. You can purchase that. Um, With that in mind, to cycle back to our comment about just the rigorousness of animal testing, they will send a, a certificate of analysis with the mouse. You know, it has... This many this the all these genes in it. Um, uh, also, the facility will go through very rigorous testing by contractors to in, and other auditing agencies to ensure that they're not infected when mm-hmm. they get here. They're not infected. The facility is kept to the utmost standard. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very well maintained field. Um, yeah. It's it's horrible if you have a violation. Just mm-hmm. the effects that happen both financially and just ethically. And with that in mind, that level of care that you take if you work in that field is very high. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I looked into, uh, looked a little bit into like the um, the ethical guidelines for medical research on animals, and the APA, the American Psychological Association, has its own set of guidelines um, for psychological research on animals. But um, for other medical testing. Um, it seems like most of it was sort of put forth by the Animal Welfare Act of 1966 and some follow-up amendments. And most of what that requires is that uh, a research institution has to put together um, an IACUC, an Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. And there are um, guidelines or uh, regulations about who who needs to be on that committee, like um, a veterinary professional and uh, people who are not otherwise involved in the work of the organization so they can be more of an independent voice and a couple of other things. And then they put together um, a report on a regular basis about the care of the animals um, for uh, for review, basically. And so um, it's, it's less a set of strict guidelines um for for animal care but more that there is a a regular review of the process and 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 it seems like the only strict guideline is basically that uh, testing will not be done on animals if it can be done otherwise Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um just to make like every effort possible to avoid medical testing on animals so and on that note i'm sorry to interject here oh uh, you're fine i i know of a colleague of mine that to speak on just the rigorousness of this kind Mm -hmm. of uh requirement uh they had a incident where their sample was unstable and it had been stable for up to the point where they were going to actually use an animal model a a mice model Mm -hmm. and it just happened that it uh precipitated out a solution and they said we can't use this like we Mm -hmm. can't ethically 
mm. dose this animal with this compound because uh, it's one, it's not representative of how it would happen if it went into a higher order organism, like, you know, uh, whatever route they went, dogs and then non-human primates and then humans. But two, it's just that level of, of, of just, I want to say common sense. Mm-hmm. You would not voluntarily expose that animal to something that would not be realistic or representative of your product. Yeah. Um, it's the, the way these animals are treated as almost like deities. I mean, they are respected in every way, shape and form they mm-hmm. can be. Well, I mean, they're like sacrifice. They're they are in a way like deities. Mm-hmm. And when well, you think about they're it, they're not choosing to sacrifice well, themselves. Yeah, that's true. I but don't know if I would go so far as to. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we can't ever know a hundred percent for sure. But I don't know. Coming from like indigenous spirituality and stuff like that, like a lot of native traditions like have this belief of there's a sort of like spiritual contract that you have with like an animal that you're going to eat. Mm-hmm. And like that, that is sort of like what's missing from our current form of like consuming animals is we don't have that like connection where we sort of like recognize the sacrifice that the animal's making and like see things on this more ecosystem holistic view. And like, I know that I've read things of like, indigenous scientists and like scientists who kind of like study almost like more metaphysical stuff. Like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with like Donna Haraway, but she writes about some of these things, like the Mm -hmm. connections that like scientists have with animals. And like, I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't know a hundred percent for sure, but you might have that almost like unexplainable connection where maybe the animal sees its greater purpose or something like that. I mean, that could 100% be projection. I was going to say, that kind of sounds like something that we say to make ourselves feel better about this scenario. But I mean, I'm not going to shit on someone's like, you know, spiritual practices that they believe that, you know, they have this, this spiritual contract with an animal. And there are scientists who kind of believe that. So the other thing I've, I've noticed, and this this isn't directly saying it's it's based in just kind of the indigenous or native kind of viewpoint yeah. in animals, but um, it's something that I, I remember hearing growing up and seeing is that um, if you do take an animal's life, you want to use every portion of that animal that exactly. you can. Mm-hmm. Um, in a native sense, this means, you know, using the fur for, for pelts, and this means mm-hmm. using the organs and using the blood and using just every single portion you could. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically because, like you said, you are taking a life, and it's one yeah. of those things that you really, truly have to respect. Um, not just depending on your beliefs, but just, just mm-hmm. on the way you respect that animal. Yeah. Um, and when that transit, and this, like I said, this is not directly based in native kind of ideology, but when that does transition to scientific research, they try to get as much data they can out of these studies. I mean, they're looking mm-hmm. for multiple analytes. They're looking at levels, which are very, very small, um, to try to show correlations and trends, which may not be so obvious, but they're trying to get as much data to the point where not that you would have to repeat an experiment because of economic reasons, but because these animals, you know, are being treated as if they are deities, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, that you want to get the most out of it. It's not like you're going to want to like just go back and have to do it again, both for yeah the economic reasons, but then also because you've wasted this mm-hmm. creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we could, like we talked about before we started, I mean, I think that there are two different and to me, there's like two different arguments for scientific versus commercial yeah. experimentation. I think those are two really, really separate things. And um, that especially because you might be doing medical research that also helps other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that isn't to say that medications are outside of the commercial sphere, but like if it's just makeup or something like yeah. that's option that's really really optional yeah like yeah the, the other thing too is a lot of the biological targets that we target as human beings whether they're for antidepressants or whether they're for um you know antibacterials or uh antiretrovirals or whatever whatever target you're really aiming for there is a homologue in a animal Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, we are so genetically similar to mice. That's that's one of the reasons we work with mice so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that in mind, uh, most of the drugs that are prescribed to us can also be prescribed to an animal. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the anti-anxiety drugs that you give dogs yeah. that you adopt from the shelters, 
you can also give a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a cat growing up that uh, was on a similar neuropathic pain medicine after a surgery that they gave my friend's grandfather. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. Just, just, we're, we're really talking about the development of kind of just the way drugs, not just the way drugs progress, but also just um, how similar we are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I guess like ethically, it's a lot cleaner cut to be like anti-animal testing when it comes to like cosmetics or um, like other um, like body and cleanliness products and stuff. It's Mm -hmm. like when, when those things are optional, when you have other avenues, when they are like um, so much less impactful that they can kind of be tested on humans from the get-go or made from like known compounds that don't need to be retested. And um, when when those things are an option, it makes so much sense to uh, like avoid animal tested products if you can. But for things that are medically necessary or beneficial or have the potential to save like hundreds of thousands of lives, like, I it's it's way less cleaner cut and um it's isn't there like a Star Trek phrase for that? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Like like some for the greater good yeah, thing. Like, yeah. Like that sort of the, approach. The needs of the many yeah. outweigh the needs of the one. Of the yeah. few. Of the few. Yeah. 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 It's like that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm kind of a communist. So <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> But I don't know, I think it's, I've just been thinking about my own, like, emotional reactions to, like, animal testing, because I think I'll have, like, this one reaction where I'm, like, I really want to, like, do away with, like, the idea of hierarchies of, like, humans are better than animals or something, but then I do also have, like, the knee-jerk reaction of somebody who's, like, well, let's go straight to human testing, and that human might die, I'm, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, or like, let's try another option. <laughs> if you do instigate human testing, like which groups of humans are going to be the test oh, subjects? Oh yeah, many of them. From and I'm saying this from from just what I've read. Many of the students in phase one clinical. So the way drugs progress. Um, so one, the FDA is extraordinarily stringent um, as far as just how things are ever going to get to the general public as a whole, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or even pres- prescribed in a medical office and. A phase one clinical trial is generally, so you have your preclinical models, which is where all this animal testing comes in, and then this progresses into clinical trials, where they actually have your phase one. And your phase one is generally a healthy population that is not afflicted with the thing you're trying, the disease or burden you're trying to treat. Mm -hmm. Um, So generally it's people anywhere the age from like 18 to 45, Mm -hmm. um, just healthy individuals. They do a very thorough blood analysis. They do very thorough, like... Um, like I said, depends on your your, your target, um, and these are you know million or if not multi million dollar trials. They're very thorough. They're very regulated. Any sort of uh, slightest adverse event is going to be documented mm-hmm. um, and then reviewed, of course. Um, and then once that happens, you go into a phase two, which is generally kind of your population which is afflicted with your um, disease or issue. Um, and in that in mind, you, you actually do, once you've proved it safe in just kind of a healthy population, you're looking at your afflicted population. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certain things you can choose for that. There's certain things you don't want to choose. Um, with that in mind, it really depends on what you're working with and what you're trying to, your goal is. Yeah. Um, that's also a trial where you determine kind of dosing, like how much of whatever you're working with should you give somebody? Should you give them 10 times as much or should you give them one time as much? Mm-hmm. Should you? And, and and all that's informed by earlier models as well. You can, uh, what's called scale up mm-hmm. from like uh, the data you get from kind of everything metabolically to pharmacokinetically to, and what I mean when I say that is what your body's going to, what the, what the species is doing with the drug um, chemically how it's disposing of it, the rate at which it's disposing of it, if it's turning it into something which is toxic, you know, all that, all that kind of rigorous safety testing mm-hmm. is then scaled up into this kind of design. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then you start comparing things like doses and, and how frequently you should do this and that kind of stuff. Um, and then phase three is kind of you do a very broad shot where you want to get kind of every, every 
individual or group or population you can just to see if there's any things you should avoid. Mm -hmm. um, a really good example of this is I think there's a diabetic test that you have a false positive if you are of East Asian descent. Interesting. Yeah. That was going to be a question of mine is if you feel like the scientific community has gotten better at finding diverse populations to like test on. Cause I like, obviously I'm not a scientist, but I've read a little bit about how there was kind of a history of studying well, besides the times that they would do horrible studies, especially on black people, if there was high risk involved, but there would often be like studies that were exclusively done on white men. And then when they were like actually giving the medication to women or people of other races, then it was like turning out that they had like the wrong effects or other side effects that weren't mm -hmm. considered. So it sounds like there's more of a protocol for getting there's, lots of people. There's much more of a protocol and it's much more, like I said, the planning and this is, I've, I've, I know people that work in the planning of clinical trials field, but mm -hmm. um, I specifically don't. But the and like I said, I'm not a medical professional in like I, I'm not going to I'm not certified to prescribe yeah. drugs or give advice with this kind of stuff. I just work in this field and we I don't want disclaimer and I don't want anything <laughs> that I've said today to be like considered medical advice. You yeah, know, you have you do not have my right to sue me and all that other kind of stuff. I'm, not aware. <laughs> uh, I'm just a good friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but with that in mind, um, we do have a very good uh, uh, method as a as a f scientific field of either ruling these things out or controlling mm -hmm. for abnormalities or um, just getting a very thorough picture of what's actually going on. Yeah. And with that in mind, so most drugs progress to what's called a phase four trial where a drug can get approved by the FDA after a phase three trial to go to market and and actually be dosed to humans and be prescribed. Mm -hmm. A phase four is the long-term effects. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really good because yeah. um, uh, it tells you, you know, say you have, uh, and this is all hypothetical, of course, like, Say you give people a drug for uh, depressive symptoms and they all develop high blood pressure or stroke. Mm -hmm. That's something that we need to know, and that drug might get recalled. Um, I think there was so a... that happens after the drug goes to market. Yes, though? but that's okay. that's those are usually like ten year follow up studies. Yeah, um, uh, and of course it depends on the drug what you're trying to treat. When when you think of our population as a whole, as as people get older, they tend to start taking more than one drug and they tend yeah. to start thinking taking drugs that work together like synergistically or um things that have some sort of interaction the way our body gets rid of drugs uh physiologically there's kind of two main routes there's mm -hmm. your kidneys or your liver um and with that in mind at that point sometimes things interact uh, a really good example of this is if you take some uh statins for high cholesterol you're not supposed to eat grapefruit because mm -hmm. they work by, via the same enzyme yeah you're not supposed to eat grapefruit if you take antidepressants either yep really? or st john's wort is another one um <laughs> yeah so there's there's certain interactions of course which and and many of these you can actually i'm pretty sure you can you can uh, predict a fair amount on the computer i've taken a course in medicinal chemistry where you can figure out a lot of these things um based on and you can always do these you know animal studies like we talked about earlier and mm -hmm. uh what they call in vitro work where it's actually done in a test tube and not in life mm -hmm. um to see if there is some sort of interaction i'm glad that's in the, a test tube and that makes sense my first thought was like you do these tests on pregnant people <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's not what that means <laughs> <laughs> yeah in vitro means like in glass in, yeah in vivo means in life oh, yeah. yeah that was the word i got wrong that I edited out of another podcast. <laughs> we might have to look that up to make sure it actually does mean in glass, but it, but in vitro generally means without life. Yeah, makes sense. Do you want to tell us about some gross stuff? Like what actually happens when you are testing something on a mouse? Not you in particular, but when what, what one yeah. does to a mouse's body. Okay. <laughs> so so this all depends on what kind of biological target you're going after. Yeah. So let me give a little bit of background of kind of the field as a whole before we go in, and then mm -hmm. we'll kind of just dive into the differences between like, studies and stuff. So mm -hmm. historically, we as a species, we as scientists, you kind of find bioactive compounds through a number of routes. There's um, when I took this course, I think they said there were nine main fields. There's like computationally based, so you're doing stuff on computers, you're like reconstructing models to try to look at like what might fit in a certain binding site. Um, you're going to uh, like 
the literature um, to see like what other people are doing and trying to base stuff off that's similar. Mm -hmm. um, you could be going to folklore. Like there's some, um, yeah, there's some compounds they find. Um, when I say compounds, I just mean like chemical structures. Um, yeah. But there's some, there's some, uh, or hits is a, they call it like hit to lead optimization, but there's some hits they find that are based on like, Native American antimicrobial mm -hmm. plants that they found out, oh, if I purify this out of this species, then it's it's really effective. Like a good example is the um, the Pacific yew tree drug, Taxol, hmm. that anti-cancer drug um, that was made in the bark of the Pacific yew tree. Huh, um, cool. So now commercially, I think they, they've engineered uh, other routes of making that because, of course, you, you have to sacrifice a lot of trees to get that drug. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, chemistry has, or, sorry, science has advanced to the point where you can uh, use alternative methods. Um, like our purification techniques have gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. Our um, uh, expression techniques have gotten a lot better. Like maybe they engineered that tree to make more of that compound. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's lots of kind of ways you can do that. But um, other things you can do is you can look at you can do like just a high throughput screening by you trying like 500,000 compounds and seeing what works. Mm -hmm. um, with that in mind, you have to work with something that has a very large, what they call a library. Um, so just a bunch of compounds they're freely able to provide. You can do things, like I said earlier, like base things off other related structurally active compounds. You can do just random luck and trial and S get, or try, trial and error. And I mean like how they used to do science. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> That's a lot less frequent now because of just the, like we're talking about the animals involved, but, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, uh, the other thing too, is you can, there's, you can develop assays where you're looking for binding specificity and say you immobilize, um, meaning you stick one part of your target to something so it can't move. And then you flow past a huge amount of compounds and seeing what sticks to it. Um, huh. so there's a lot as a, as a society or sorry, as a field, we've advanced fairly, uh, competently and that we can do that almost commercially as well. Cool. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can kind of discover stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but at least in the last, uh, I would say 60 to 70 years. And like I said, this is informal. I'm not, I haven't done any research to myself. This is just what I kind of know. We did a lot of oral dosing, meaning mm -hmm. you take a pill and it goes to work at its destination. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of issues with that because um, if you take a pill orally, there's two main issues. One, it goes through your stomach, which is incredibly acidic. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking like a very – I think we're talking down to pH 2, 1 or 2. Mm -hmm. um, there are some things that are acid labile, meaning they'll degrade as soon as they hit that pH. Mm -hmm. And there's ways you can get around that. Um, I can tell you some examples of that in a little bit. But the other thing too is – uh, you have what's called the first pass effect, where after it goes through your stomach and in the intestinal lumen of your gut, you um, have uh, your your liver starts filtering this compound out. Um, and there's certain ways you can mitigate that. There's certain things you can attach to the compound to make it less uh, able to be degraded. Um, and I'm not really going to go into that either because uh, that's not something I know too much about. But so most of the drugs we've done over the last six or seven years have been that route. Mm -hmm. um, the other way of dosing, you can do uh, injectables, um, which, you know, you can inject straight into a muscle like a vaccine. You can inject mm -hmm. into a vein so it gets into your circulatory, circulatory system. It's, it's much more directed um, rather than just kind of a broad effect like a mm -hmm. oral dose. Mm -hmm. um, there's also some sort of uh, drugs you can do like a nicotine patch where you just yeah. put dermally and yeah. it absorbs through the skin. Um, I had a friend that took some pain medicine. And it was just a cream they rubbed on. I mean, look at, you know, wow. the CBD oils. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so stuff like that. Um, yeah. There's a lot, of, a lot of ways you can do that. But most of the drugs that we've kind of worked with in development purposes have been oral. And now the field is kind of switching to more injectables because you, you can avoid that acidic pH of your stomach. You, don't, you can avoid the first pass effect of your liver. And you can go straight into the systemic circulation just by injecting into a vein. Yeah. Um, so Aren't there, I feel like there's sense. been a lot of movement on like inhalable drugs too. Yes. It's, yeah. Um, so with that in mind, a lot of those are in the immunolo immunological field. So there mm -hmm. are vaccines like flu mist is an inhalable flu vaccine. I think yeah. it's been pulled from the market um, because uh -oh. there were some issues with it. <laughs> um, but that field is also expanding pretty rapidly. So it really depends on your target. Like uh, if you want to work with a 
vaccine for children and you want to immunize against flu, you can do that. If you want to work with asthmatics, you can, you can do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, especially, I would think with kids, you're probably, like, you like want to find, yeah, alternatives <laughs> to needles. <Yes. laughs> um, and it's interesting you say that because as a scientific community, we're now figuring out we can actually make the needles a lot less painful. Oh, that so. took long enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, EpiPens seem to be less painful. I haven't ever taken one, but from people I've known who've had to, mm-hmm. that seems like a better alternative than like You can also you can style. also instead of making one needle where you're delivering your drug, you can make like fifty that are Oh smaller. yeah, I've seen that where yeah. it's it's, it's almost like a, like a little Band-aid. Like a sharp little patch that you just kind of press into somebody and mm-hmm. then it's done. Yep. Yeah. But they, it, it's, it feels a lot more like um, kind of a bunch of tiny acupuncture pricks than like one big scary <laughs> prick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that sounds really cool. And with that in mind, um, it's a lot easier to deliver as well because yeah. you don't really... Um, I mean, if you pull off a piece of tape and you stick it on you like a Band-Aid... It's pretty easy to do. You don't have to have any sort of skill in, like, not injecting error into your circulatory system because you are doing it yourself. Yeah, so that can be literally one of my worst fears. (laughs) (laughs) It would be something really easy to do at, like, a a school office or something without having to have somebody come in and administer it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. There's there's a lot of – there was an article I read recently, and it was talking about how – in apocalyptic or pandemic situations, and you know, we're we're talking about the worst case scenario here. Oh, you mean like in two days? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, say we have some sort of like virus that spreads, you know, through the air, and it's just highly contagious, and it's 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 it may lay dormant for a while, and that we don't have certain uh, diagnostic methods in place to test for this mm-hmm. yet because it just happens that this just came on so fast, like. If we do develop a therapeutic or a prophylactic or a vaccine or an immunological kind of benefit, beneficial product, um, we have to be able to deliver that on a mass scale by uh, people that may not be trained in that field. So with that in mind, you know, uh, we're going away from needles and things that require complex preparations to simple. I assume at some point they would just start crop dusting. Like that's, <laughs> that's how it's really gonna happen. <laughs> like, no, that's we're not fucking around with like, like, yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna be individual applications though. I don't think. So back to this original question about yeah. what do you actually, what do we actually do with the animals? I kind of wanted to give this kind of introduction <laughs> because I, I just wanted to talk about routes of administration, yeah. and dosing, and stuff, just so everyone gets an idea that we do a lot of things with these animals and. Before I talk into like the grossness of this, like, um, like I said, everything's respected and controlled. Like this, mm-hmm. if, if it's if it's not approved by as as one of us mentioned earlier, the the IUCAC or I, you know, that committee we mentioned, mm-hmm. um, it's not going to be done. Like yeah. this, this is gonna this has to work prior to doing this. Yeah. So, oh, so they pre-approve everything. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and and if something fails, they won't do this. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Remember, this is about respecting the animal, just about respecting us. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so generally, you know, with animals, you can do very basic things from drawing blood, you know, just like Mm -hmm. we can do in humans. Um, you can do every very basic things like collecting feces and waste, just like we've done with drug tests and, or sorry, not drug tests. Well, yeah, drug tests and also like STD tests and Mm -hmm. or STIs, sorry, um, tests in humans. Um, we can do. And pregnancy tests and. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, and there's, you can figure out a lot of stuff from just blood or plasma yeah Um, so that's kind of your basic route but if you want to start talking about kind of the gross stuff this is the more specialized very specific to a certain case and very specific to a certain disease um so there's certain things that you would look for in uh let's start with inhalables like say you're working with some sort of um pathogen that's uh airborne like, and it causes scarring and tissue in the lungs, like, mm-hmm. you would actually open up the mouse, um, and I can see the grimace across the, across the <laughs> well, Yeah. Yes. I mean, we were talking no, about we this. want to hear. I'm just like, baby. Yes. <laughs> we were talking about this in preparation for this episode, but, like, I mean, this this is a really viscerally gross thing, but it it's something that we depend on for we our know. survival, and I think that it's 
it's important for us to um, be connected to this process or at least understand it. So mm-hmm. I we're we're going to be we're grossed out, but don't 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 stop on our account. So, so and, and like I said before, I really dive into this more. This is done in a humane way. Yeah, and I'm going to put this as as and I'm going to repeat this. This is humane yeah. because. We know that these animals can feel pain. If mm-hmm. you happen to do something painful to this animal, it will react in a appropriate manner. Yeah. Right. Um, so do you, uh, you know, give it, you know, numb it or whatever? Or... So a lot of, um, and obviously this is specific to the facility and the the protocols and the committee and everything. But a lot of, uh, a lot of drugs that work in one organism work in another organism. So a lot of these mice are like on Prozac and ketamine. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So <laughs> so if you're going to Special K. Vitamin K. Vitamin K. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> special K is a breakfast cereal. I thought that they also <laughs> called it Special K, but I don't do a lot of hard drugs. Yeah. So <laughs> And I, I don't either. I just know a lot about it. I just know a lot about drugs. But, um, so... but they, they are uh, medicated to make these experiences the as uh, unstressful as possible. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Yes. So there's nice. there's certain things. So from the protocols that I have heard from other people that work in this field, ketamine is a very common drug that is injected in the mouse to to eliminate the pain. Mm. Um, they also put the mouse to sleep with something like isoforine. Um, it's a basically they put the mouse in a box and it starts breathing in this compound and it puts the mouse to sleep, mm-hmm. um, keeps the heart beating and everything because uh, you know you're the mouse is still awake at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they actually sterilize the mouse with isopropanol, where they grab it by the tail and they drip it into a bucket, and it actually Ooh. destroys all the bacteria on the surface mm. um, prior to even getting this far. Um, so there's a lot of kind of steps in place to make sure that this is all. And you know, the the scientific benefit of this is very. Um, I see another grimace across the table. The scientific okay. benefit of this is. It, you want to get accurate data and you want to get data you trust. So if yeah. you get some sort of uh, data that indicates, say you're looking for like bacteria or like numbers of Ebola virus in a mouse, mm-hmm. like um, which Ebola, as far as I know, isn't in a mouse, but you know, whatever. It could be. It, <laughs> um, say, and I, I'm not a virologist by any means, but, but, but say like um, whatever you're looking for, you want to control for that. And then, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it, uh, and I don't know if this is what's always done, but this is what can be done mm-hmm. um, to make sure the mouse, once it's sedated and like, you know, very, very obviously in a much better place, mm-hmm. um, you just break the neck. Oh. And <laughs> the technique for doing that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. And I don't know if that's what you would do in every situation, but that's the surefire way to end the mouse's life. And yeah. it's quick and it's, you know, painless because the yeah. mouse is asleep yeah. and very drugged. And um, by I that point... even if, like... That, that suck if that was, like, your job. Well, yeah. I know, like, like I... There's a very high turnover killer. in that field. Yeah. 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 I know if you if you have, like, a, a chicken or something. Like, I have friends who've had chickens that get injured. And if you're not willing to, like, cut their neck or, like chop them to eat them like if you mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the way that the veterinarian will teach you to um kill them for like for the animal's sake is to break their neck so mm-hmm. um people have to do that to their animals all the time even when they are awake and i think oh. that it's, it's i guess it's like extra yeah because extra mean, humane to mm-hmm. put the animal it's, yeah it's not like you couldn't because you're studying something so it's not like you could like probably inject them in some sort of way like they do with like cats and dogs when they put them down because that might potentially it would complicate yes. yeah yeah it, it depends you you have to worry about the data you're getting out of this model and you have to worry about the integrity of and the skill it's going to require mm-hmm. i mean it's it's we're talking, I mean, how big is a, a mouse that we're going to be working with? Granted, mm-hmm. it's going to be easy to catch because it's in a cage or a pen. Yeah. And like, um, there's, there's certain things you can do. Um, but you know, if you're working with an injectable, which the field is kind of going towards, um, for the most part, uh, you're going to have to be able to deliver a much smaller dose because mm-hmm. we dose based on body weight, yeah. um, mm-hmm. in this circumstance. 
um, or based on some other criteria. Um, commonly, when you scale down, you scale, you do it based on body, body weight, and you're going to be delivering a very small amount of analyte or, yeah. or substance. So you have yeah. to get very good at what you're doing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I feel like this is somewhere that, that they could just put sociopaths to work. <laughs> like, like, like I work in the field of domestic violence and I know that there are like probation officers that are like, what do we do with these horrible people who seem to not have emotions? They could be the mouse killers. <laughs> like, it's, maybe it's, that would reduce the turnover. <laughs> so I have a colleague who is a very good friend of mine and grew up, and I'm not going to say where because I don't want to lead some sort of negative connotation to another country or, or group mm-hmm. of people, but grew up in a very rural area outside of North America. And he was quite good at working in this field specifically because he had had to do some of these things growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew where his meat was coming from and he knew the ways of, of ending suffering and yeah. like, like actually actually working with the, when I say working with, I mean turning the animals into food, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something that I don't want to say you can get skilled at, but you can become proficient in. Yeah. Well, and we were talking yesterday about like you, people can have resiliency in different areas, yes. like yeah. that you can learn how to deal with certain kinds of trauma. And I think it helps to contextualize it too. If you're like knowing that you're doing it for a purpose and it's not just obscene violence. And mm-hmm. I think maybe in an average American is like detached from how a lot of things are made. And then also constantly inundated with obscene violence, mm-hmm. like gratuitous violence. And so yeah. I think our under like we have like a distancing from the real violence that does happen and has to happen for, unfortunately, the world to move forward in a lot of cases. And, yeah. And like you mentioned, we're very far removed from ever seeing this ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So the animal is it gets its neck broken but that's not just to end its life because the uh, and this is this i'm, I'm the spe- testing is over this is there's more testing i'm speaking happens. like this is like when you're looking at like the end of an animal study so you're mm-hmm. looking at the effect of your drug or you're looking yeah. at the effect this is something like um and granted you know your animal study may never even get this far it may just involve like you're looking at a new antidepressant and you're trying to make the mouse that's deficient in serotonin Mm -hmm. uh, or like has uh, just lower levels of some transporter, like a little bit more energetic. Yeah. That could be your readout. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is kind of the more. What happens to those mice? I, like They're I said, happy. <laughs> they, they completed a, a trial. They served their usefulness. They get to live out the rest of their life in a mouse sanctuary. So, so not every animal that goes into an animal facility undergoes a trial. There are uh-huh. some that are specifically kept around for like breeding purposes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, there are some that are kept around for I don't know. I don't want to say like it's the canary in the coal mine kind of thing where it's Mm -hmm. a warning of something where to go wrong. But, um, not every animal that goes through this kind of stuff ends up in a horrible kind of gruesome end. Okay. Good. Um, Yeah. And I mean, do you get to keep any of them as pets? I specifically don't. Um, (laughs) It it really depends on your funding source and how much, (laughs) how much you can get away with. Um, granted this is like we've mentioned at least several times earlier. This is a very regulated industry. Yeah. Like that those super energetic mice, like don't become like a classroom pet or something afterwards. (laughs) This is, this isn't like we're working at the humane society and you can just adopt, adopt an animal. Yeah. This is, uh, more controlled for that reason. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But well, this is this is specifically at like the end of a study. Mm-hmm. Um, at, sorry, at the end of a study where you actually have to look at the effectiveness of whatever you're doing to the point where it involves sacrificing the mouse. Mm-hmm. So how what how do they do that? <laughs> yeah. So Katie, Katie wants to get to the like organ pulling out part. Get so, to the gross stuff. <laughs> so yeah. Sorry, we're kind of no, kidding. We're <laughs> dancing around the topic specifically because it's a it's a controversial and emotional topic to yeah. get into. Mm-hmm. But um, pull that bandaid off. <laughs> um, and before I get into this again, like I said, this this is only for studies in which this is the end. I mean, there are um, instances where you know your readout is not looking for 
some sort of parasite in the mouse your readout is looking for just energy levels or mm-hmm. is it breeding more or is this happening you know yeah um, mm-hmm. and, and many of these readouts you can find just by taking blood yeah and yeah which that in and of itself um this surprises a lot of people but the way that you take blood from a mouse is not you stick a needle in there and draw it out it's hmm. you break the, me- the membrane around the eye oh <laughs> And it by capillary <laughs> with a very small capillary and by capillary action it just just comes right out. Interesting. Yeah. Is that <laughs> is, is the mouse put to sleep before that happens? I I'm going to guess it is, but I don't know for sure. Okay. So, but like I said, everything's done in a humane way. And, and yeah. So back to the topic of 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 things that you can do with the mouse besides inject things so most of the stuff i know because the stuff that i've worked with is very much uh in the immunology field and you kind of have to sacrifice the animal to get Mm -hmm. some of these readouts but you can you can look for like indications of like turning on the immune system like through chemicals that are produced in the blood Hmm. um through certain assays so there's a lot of it is blood related um or if you're working on like digestive issues a lot of it is feces related you know you never even have to deal with the mouse you just need, need to collect just the feces. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, this is like the end all worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, like I said, you can pierce the membrane and draw blood from the orbital socket. Um, I think that's the term. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> when you actually do open up the mouse, depending on what you're working with, um, some... I know airborne diseases, they usually remove the lungs and then they do what's called homogenization, where they take mm-hmm. the lungs and they put them in this uh, machine, for lack of a better term, and it basically turns it into a homogenized goop um, or homogenized sample. Is uh, that sort of like a like a centrifuge or something? You made a, a, a circular, circular motion? motion. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a mixer in and of itself. Okay. Um, like a blender? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not funny, but... Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Um, <laughs> so they goop it so that... Then they can look at it under a microscope, okay. or then they can, yeah, yeah kind of... Oh, yeah, because I guess if you're looking for sort of like... Like bacteria. Yeah, or like yeah. parts per million or something. You, you... can count these like yeah. with a microscope and a, yeah. and a, what do you call it, like a... Not like a stopwatch, but one of those counters you can like click the button in your hand. When you yeah. see things, yeah. whereas like if the lung was intact, things would have collected in different areas of it, and it would be really hard to understand like the overall like percentage of what is in there. So, so they also take out other organs. I've seen, um, you know, and I say this very casually because I've been in this field, and this is, this still does get to me as well. I'm not trying to say this as a very sadistic or mm-hmm. um, cruel way of doing this. This is just the nature of this field um the way it goes yes and um you can take out the spleen to look at things that are disseminated through the body you can Mm -hmm. take out the uh, heart to look for calcification you can take out parts of the brain you can take out um, really any part of the animal you can take out depending on your analyte it really depends on what you're looking for there's protocols for washing i mean i mean washing the intestines of the mouse to look for bacteria that lives in there there's protocols for um looking at skin development there it's it's really what you're looking for you know yeah yeah so talking about science to non-scientific audiences is always somewhat difficult for scientists unless they have a natural inkling or they can kind of think themselves into another perspective mm-hmm. um or another kind of background because when you spend hours a day reading this kind of stuff and and you're very current on the field Mm -hmm. and you're a very good diligent scientist you kind of lose track of your audience maybe talking to a middle school class or you know (laughs) they may not know multi-syllable words or that kind of stuff yeah Yeah, or you lose track of that line between like what normal people know and what people in the industry know yes and i it's one of those things that i've i've given talks before it's one of those things that i try to remember as much as i can because the your presentation efficiency is completely dependent upon the audience's reception yeah Mm -hmm. i studied a lot of political theory Mm -hmm. and so similarly there's a lot of heady 
terminology you can get stuck on and then all of a sudden remember that you know probably your average person's never heard of a, the panopticon before mm-hmm. and like, yeah <laughs> try talking to people about accounting because <laughs> already nobody wants to talk about money so <laughs> and, and the other thing too is like how do how exactly do you i don't want to say dumb it down but how do you make it relatable yeah and how do you mm-hmm. make it inter- interesting that somebody wants to listen to it I would always just somehow tie it back to Beyonce when I was teaching. <laughs> and my students were like, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah. It's good skill. I, being, being in the medical field or a, mm-hmm. kind of ad, adjunct to the medical field, like there's things we know about like surgeries, um, mm-hmm. like the way bones smell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> grind oh. them up. The way that. Uh, How would you describe what bones smell like? Have you been to the dentist and had a teeth, tooth, sorry, can't speak, tooth, like, ground down and then built back up? Uh-huh. You know, no. the, you know the smell, like, when you're having a filling? Have I had a, I have one no, filling. No, Jessica grew up with uh, fl- fluoride in her water. <laughs> I had, like, one, <laughs> one filling. I, I was very small. Like, almost remember. my entire mouth is fillings at this point. I can't, like, my teeth are half fake. Not, like, the whole tooth. Just, like, they've been drilled out and rebuilt so many times that I feel like they, like, I don't understand how I still get cavities. Because it's got to be mostly fake at this point. <laughs> but I know exactly what um, teeth smell like when they're being ground. <laughs> I know what death smells like. You said death? Yeah, like when things are decomposing. So, okay, so chemically, so things that smell really bad, like rotting fish, rotting yeah. flesh, like this kind of stuff, those compounds are what are called amines. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and mo- most of them, I mean, obviously there's a very broad, you know, spectrum of things that smell horrible. Yeah. Depending on who you are, some things might smell more horrible to you than other people. Like mm-hmm. cilantro. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny that that's your example. But... <laughs> I love cilantro. But I know that to some people it smells disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to the amines. Um, yeah. So an amine is just something like a part of the molecule has a nitrogen atom uh, bonded to one or more hydrogens, um, free. And that when I say free, I mean like at the end, possibly charged, um, just easily accessible. Mm -hmm. So amines typically smell horrible when a body decomposes, um, it releases a chemical called cadaverine, Mm -hmm. which obviously smells like probably or sounds like what it would smell like. Mm-hmm. So we talked about this in an episode. Petrocene is, is another, sorry, is, is another one. <laughs> I love that name. Mm-hmm. Is one of the, one of those has to be the one that they re, the, that is released, uh, like specifically to alert other creatures to come help you decompose. Right. Do you, I'm, you're making a face. I know that's not, <laughs> clearly not. But I remember there's there's something that gets released that is basically, like, telling the environment around you, like, I'm I'm dead. Come help me become one like with you. Like what maggots smell. Yeah. So, know to go to it. So, to take a step back before we dive into this specifically, um, you, most organisms have what's called and this is not like the textbook definition. This is kind of my collected through my knowledge of what I'm going to talk about here from some previous work and from some just um, reading in my own free time. Mm-hmm. Most most organisms have what are called primary metabolites, which are things that are needed to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to primary metabolism, you have what's called secondary metabolism or uh-huh. secondary metabolites. And those are compounds that are made not... It's not required that they're made, but they're made. And it could be because they receive some sort of external stimuli. Mm -hmm. It could be because they're sending a signal to something. Mm -hmm. It could be because it's a symbiotic relationship with another organism. Um, Like when you start thinking of what are called like... um, opportunistic infections or or Mm. opportunistic pathogens, you know, things that don't really thrive unless you're there on an immunocompromised individual or things that are fungi things that grow on other things mm-hmm. um they release compounds in in some sort of communication with what they're growing on oh yeah yeah so stuff like that. so that stuff is true and that's stu- the other thing like here's another really good example they might release compounds based on how densely populated the cells are mm. so there's a lot of this huh. is a complex field that i don't really know a lot about i know a colleague who's very 
smart and brilliant and knows a lot about this specifically because they've done just a lot of work in this field. Um, but it's obviously organism specific, so you can't generalize it. But... Yeah. So is is this group of metabolites? Yes. Is what would include like pheromones and stuff? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So um, and obviously it would be dependent upon like what the end goal of the of the metabolite yeah. would be. Yeah. I mean, if you're horned up and looking <laughs> for attraction or yeah. you know that kind of stuff, and you want to, or you're like ready, you're like in your peak of ovulation. Like, yeah. You would yeah. release certain chemicals that would. Yeah indicate that you were at a good spot and a good time and that would probably increase your likelihood and chances of and that could be happened behaviorally as well but that would increase your likelihood that you're... i was gonna say you say this as though it's a theoretical thing like i know that happened <laughs> <laughs> i, I can to... tell you what day that's happening so yeah. i the way i kind of broach these subjects is like i i try to talk about them as if i'm not the expert because i realize that one, I want to say something that's not true and misinform a bunch of people and then mm -hmm. be, all of a sudden be quoted as this, this expert because I'm not. But two, because there's so much that we don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing people about this. I know. People are still studying, like, to even figure out how pheromones work. Like, we don't understand that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, like, we know that they work, that they do something, but yeah. we don't know how. If you spray deer urine around an area... Yeah. Deer are going to come near. Like, it just happens. Do you uh, think that works with human urine? No, I think they... <laughs> then they stay away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny that you say that because uh, I think one of the first... One of the elements was discovered because they boiled, like, 50 buckets of urine. That's pretty gross. Really? Yeah. I, th um, I think it was... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Which element? You can Google it really quick. What's in urine? Ammonia? Ammo no, uh, I think it was phosphorus. Huh. I don't know if ammonia even is an element. I'm going to argue it's a, it's a that <laughs> because I've lived in New York City, that in fact, if you do saturate a location in urine, more people more will come people pee there. will come live there <laughs> because that is what New York smells like. And it's one of the most densely populated cities in our country. So I think my hypothesis is true. Mm -hmm. If you pee on it, they will come. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being on our show, Liam. And thank you out there for listening. If you want to hear more, you can find us at grossbod.com and on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, where we would be super stoked if you liked, subscribed, or gave us a hot review. Um, we are also now on the air locally in Bellingham on KZAX 94.9 FM and streaming on KZAXradio.org. Send us topic requests or your best poop stories at grossbodcast at gmail.com. Um, also, if you have any ideas for merch that you would like to see, uh, I'm just going to put it out there. We've been discussing that possibility. So, And yes, um... we already have <laughs> vagina fans on our list. So. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah, little fans for any genitals, really. Don't forget to air out your vagina. Vaginas. And air out your mouse intestines. Oh, God. 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 Oh,